Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, national reporter for the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at our Arizona Capitol Bureau are... Ricardo Cano, I cover education for the Republic. Dustin Gardner, I cover the state legislature. Richard Rellis, I'm covering the governor on an interim basis. Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. This week on The Gaggle, how did a Democrat in the deep red district of Congressional District 8 pull such a close race last week? And what might her five-point loss mean for Republicans headed into the midterms? Budget bills have been dropped down here at the state capitol. Beyond the broad brush strokes, what is really buried in them? But first, we're in day four of a teacher strike here in Arizona. It's expected to last at least five days. Tens of thousands of teachers across the state have walked out of the classroom and have been marching, protesting, and attending public meetings here at the state capitol to demand 20% raises. Ricardo, Governor Doug Ducey rolled out a plan intended to give these teachers what they have asked for. His proposal has not seemed to really quell the emotions here. Why not? Uh, so we're in day four, and you're still seeing hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands maybe teachers lining up here at the Capitol wearing red. Um, and it basically boils down to the same sticking points they've had since the governor has announced this effort. Um, you know, they question the, the reliability and sustainability of the funding. They say it doesn't go far enough in addressing the five demands that they've laid out. Uh, the the main one, which appears to be um, restoring the billion dollars that have been cut since the recession in education funding, um, and the budget got rolled out. The budget bills were introduced Monday evening, and again, you're still seeing a, a heavy presence of red for red protesters here. Uh, so clearly, not yet quelled with um, what what is moving at the legislature. There seems to be a question also as to whether or not all teachers would get this 20% raise that the governor has promised. Richard, you were tracking that down yesterday. This obviously will be an important sticking point for teachers as we move forward. What What's the deal here? It's also a sticking point for me and other reporters because it involves math. But sitting through the Joint Legislative Budget Committee hearings, uh, the presentations yesterday, the second time through it clicked and it clicked with a, uh, a senator that because the money is being rolled out based on an average statewide teacher salary, districts are going to get a pot of money based on how many teachers they have multiplied by that average statewide salary. What the JLBC told the Senate uh, Democrats was that that means that if a district is paying its teachers above the statewide average, that district is not going to get enough money to give all of its teachers a 20% raise. Conversely, if there's a district that is lower than average, it is going to be able to give its teachers, it's going to have enough money to give its teachers more than a 20% raise. Now, the governor's office disputes the JLBC's figures, and they say they're going to try to get back to us and walk us through the formula that shows it. They also say that any schools that are not going to get enough funds uh, are outliers. There's going to be just a few of those, and those could be remedied. Uh, we're going to crunch the numbers ourselves and see what what we can make of it. Uh, but if there's a significant number of dif- districts that don't end up with 20%, that could be a political problem for a governor who said, mark my words, every teacher in the state will get a 20% pay raise. And for a governor who clearly has been grappling to try to meet these demands and one who has fashioned himself as an education 
governor. Yes, I mean, he has, uh, from the time this plan was introduced, there's been a hard sell, and, and most, I mean, most people have probably seen it on the airwaves, that there is a, a, a push, and he's been on uh, every television station. The, last week, uh, he was on television stations asking viewers to contact their lawmakers to support this plan. This is not a governor who uh, is on morning TV most weeks. Uh, so uh, he has d- done a hard sell, uh, both within the halls of uh, the legislature and to the public. Ricardo, a citizen's initiative was filed last week that would raise uh, taxes on the wealthiest 1% of Arizonans to boost education funding. What else would this initiative do? This initiative, which was dropped Friday, uh, would bring in $690 million in education funding. Um, again, it's, it's the first proposal that we've seen so far that would refer something to the ballot this November. Um, wealthiest of the, you know, Arizona's wealthiest earners are, are essentially going to be taxed and, and asked to um, fund some of the cuts that have been made since the recession. Um, as of now, we, we honestly don't know which, which advocacy groups, which stakeholders are, are behind this effort. Um, Arizona Educators United, the grassroots group of educators and teachers who are coordinating uh, the, the statewide walkout, um, you know, they haven't formally signed on to this, and this campaign didn't consult them in, in crafting um, this uh, effort. Uh, I've asked Noah Carvelis, um, one of the organizers of the Red for Ad movement, what, you know, what their take is, and he hasn't responded, and um, it, it, it'll be interesting to see wh- whether they formally back this, because they've indicated you know, during their rally so far that they would take something to the ballot. We don't know if that's, if it's necessarily that. And as we record this here on a Tuesday morning with the possibility that the legislature passes this budget and possibly adjourns uh, early Wednesday, a question might be, you know, what happens with the Red for Red movement? Do they physically still come to the state capitol and protest with no lawmakers in sight, or do they direct their energies elsewhere? That has been an interesting dynamic of all this, just the distance between Red for Ed and the organizers of this ballot initiative. When the initiative first came up, you know, I was asking that question, too, is Red for Ed part of this? Is this what they've been talking about? You know, and one of the the people helping organize the ballot initiative said they're supportive, but then we haven't seen that officially, you know, on the surface yet. So I don't know if that's some sort of strategic angle in their mind, but it would be interesting to see, you know, if there is eventually some sort of endorsement given. And I think, you know, all signs... You know, with the way that things have played out publicly the last couple of days, the heavy presence that you've seen here in the Capitol with Red for Red supporters and protesters, um, you know, I, I think it seems pretty clear that their end game, at least, is not to just stop here with what's going to happen this legislative session. I mean, they've already heavily signets, um, you know, hinted that they would take something to the ballot. And um, again, there's a lot of political chess maneuvers at this point you know this started off as a grassroots movement but every move at this point that the organizers are going to make is going to be seen as political by some you know partisan by some so you know they are 
in the in the Game of Thrones, so to speak, Arizona edition. So, and I think you have to wonder too how much of this is about optics. I mean, I don't think there's any delusion among the Red Frat organizers that the governor and the legislature are not going to give them what they want in the waning days of the session. So they are looking at a ballot initiative. And how much um, is the continuing walkout and protest at the Capitol about just building public momentum and pressure heading into that ballot initiative effort? Because oddly enough, uh, as the protests have gone on outside. I've been, it's been very hot during some of these days. I've been blessedly inside uh, watching, uh, watching it through the window as Ricardo and others have been sweating. But it hasn't really seemed to have moved lawmakers who are out there watching the protests. And, you know, uh, a couple have been said it's great to see people out here engaged in democracy. But some of them also said this isn't going to rush us. We're not being moved uh, to act based on people protesting outside. And I think you've seen as much from the organizers. I I think their message has been pretty defiant in their speeches. Um, You know, Noah Carvelis again, you know, he's in his in his talks at the rallies here, you know, he said that uh, it's going to take educators to do something themselves. Um, It's been very pointed kind of language, um, again, heavily inferring that they are going to do something beyond this session. So I am calling in my school principal. will be closed on Wednesday, May 2nd. I can't speak for other Madison schools, but all indications do show that uh, we will not be open tomorrow. The district... All right, my kids' school, yet another day being closed on Wednesday. It's unclear how long this strike will last. I took that call in the middle of taping. Uh, Going back to the Citizens Initiative, it is interesting that it's is calling for um, a level of funding that wouldn't even meet their own standard, right? Their own standard of a billion dollars. Do you have a sense of why that is? Well, the way that the leaders of this campaign have been um, framing it, you know, David Lujan with his Arizona Center for Arizona Economic Progress and um, Josh Buckley, a Mesa teacher who is president of the Mesa Education Association, you know, they're saying that this uh, this is equitable, this is an equitable, sustainable way to get some money into Arizona schools without the legislature being able to fiddle with any of it. Um, you know, they've acknowledged that this doesn't, um, you know, make whole the, the demands of, you know, that the educators ha- have announced. Um, but, you know, they're, they're hoping that that the 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 grassroots group gets on board. I sense just in my own kind of circle of friends uh, that the support for the walkouts uh, for one day, two days, three days, okay. Now we're starting to get phone calls like what I just took, four days, maybe five, maybe six. At what point does support really start to turn against the teacher? I, th- I think that is the political calculus that these organizers are analyzing every hour that this walkout remains a thing. So at this point, you know, we're in Tuesday, day four, 768,000 of Arizona's kids are still um, out of school because of the walkout. Um, you know, you, you can certainly say anecdotally that you know, the, the whatever ceiling that they had, they're starting to lose that support from te- from parents who who are starting to feel the the real life impact of having to find childcare, of having to uh, figure out how they're going to maneuver through this. Um, I mean, at this point, you know, their their school districts are getting behind 
their their effort they're still closing schools on mass so you know it's safe to say that they still have whatever support from the public and the community that they need to to keep sustaining this walkout but um again the the calculus of it is at what point do you start losing um that support beyond <laughs> getting people to turn on you yeah and i mean i also get the sense too that they might want to you know just stick this out till signy die i mean you know it might be a couple more days if that until this session ends i think you know we i was meant talking about the optics a minute ago i think part of their calculus is that they want to ride this out to the end to say that they were here until the last minute pushing for a better budget and they didn't get it so now they're going to go to the voters Monday, state lawmakers finally dropped the highly anticipated budget bills. Beyond funding raises for teachers, there's a lot of other gems buried in the documents. For example, to win over conservatives, there's more money for the controversial Koch-backed Freedom Schools, which some GOP lawmakers see as a way to fight liberal university indoctrination. The proposal also includes $13 million for developmentally disabled funding that was proposed to be cut, as well as $2 million in arts funding. Dustin, you've been poring over these documents. What else does the public need to know? One aspect of this that's been getting a lot of attention, especially among conservative lawmakers, is a fee increase that's necessary to make the governor's plan pencil. Um, the governor has said publicly that there is no tax increase involved in this budget. Well, that's only true if you don't consider a fee hike, a tax increase. Um, built into this budget is an $18 fee increase, or roughly $18 fee increase, that all Arizona drivers will pay when they register their cars next year. This is a fee on all um, 8.3 million vehicles registered in the state. Um, some conservative lawmakers asked the governor not to do that. They're basically saying that his claim there is no tax increase isn't, isn't, um, isn't genuine, given that's built into their um, so that's a, one aspect I'm seeing that there's kind of behind the scenes conservative lawmakers are begrudgingly feeling like they might have to vote for this budget, but they're uncomfortable with that piece of it. Yeah, when the budget proposal first came out, when the teacher pay deal first came out, it was based on what people who were criticized it called really rosy economic stats, that uh, the governor said, we don't need to raise taxes, the economy is doing well, it will continue to do well at a pretty good clip, and that's going to bring in so much money that we can anticipate having a lot of it, and we can put that to teacher pay raises. So a lot of Republican lawmakers decided let's we're not comfortable spending money based on an economic forecast, so they had to find new sources of revenue. And Speaker Messner told me uh, that last week that as they reached a deal, that highway user fee, that HERF funding, was the biggest component because it's supposed to bring in upwards, at the end of this plan, three years, $100 million or so? Yeah, More I than mean, $100 million, $150 million maybe? To put this in context, the ge the general fund impact of this fee is going to be a $107 million net benefit to the governor's budget plan, um, and that's basically a fifth of the overall cost of the 20% raises for teachers. And so having that fee built into here, this enabled them to push it forward with those, you know, less rosy economic projections. Yeah, and I guess if you don't want to pay the fee, you don't have to register your car. You can take, you know, public transportation or Uber uh, or Lyft everywhere. But I do see there are, I mean, Anthony Kern was one of them, lawmakers who are saying, I don't like any budget that puts more pressure on average, everyday Arizonans. There's another one they needed, and this wasn't so much uh, the fiscal impact, but there's a 
desegregation property tax that the state has been subsidizing uh, in Phoenix and Tucson. And part of this deal, that state aid will end. Only, though, in Tucson, in Phoenix, it's continuing. But taxpayers in Tucson will either have to pay more in property tax or the districts will have to do with less. But again, it's a transfer of uh, responsibility from the state to a local jurisdiction, to, in this case, residents of Tucson who own land. Well, does that violate the governor's tax, no tax increase plan? Well, he he's not raising taxes. He's just saying we're not going to subsidize this fund anymore. So it's up to that local district. It's up to the county to either raise taxes or they could just do without that money. Desegregation funding, uh, it, local property taxes and that school districts who are um, in uh, agreements with the uh, federal office for civil rights, um, you know, they can access this levy without, you know, the approval of the voters um, based on decades long agreements, um, you know, and, and complaints from from folks that these districts at some point violated, you know, uh, segre- desegregation orders. Um, they're up until recent years, there hasn't been a sunset for this, so schools were able to increase that funding, um, you know, unfettered. And um, again, recent years, there's been a pretty concerted effort to do away with that. And I would just add that when you're talking about desegregation funding here in Arizona, this there has been a years-long effort to do away with this funding on the premise that it isn't fair that some school districts can access it when others don't. But when you're talking about this funding, I think it's important to note Phoenix Union, Tucson Unified, some of the the, the biggest benefactors of DSEG funding. um, And it uh, it accounts for a huge chunk, a sizable chunk of their um, annual budgets. For example, Phoenix Union, 20% of their budget is DSEG funding. I think they get something somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million a year from this. What are the Democrats saying about this uh, budget proposal? They were mainly upset that they only saw it when the general public did. They, uh, And this is kind of a, a running theme that I've noticed uh, over the last uh, few years. If they're not in power, they say that they're shut out of any kind of budget-making process. Uh, and so they were upset that they didn't get a hand in crafting it. It looks as though records we got indicate that Senators Contreras, Bradley, and Bowie, who are all Democrats, and Representative Espinosa actually met with Governor Ducey and his lobbyists on April 23rd uh, to talk about the budget plan. That seems to run contrary with the, na- with the narrative that they weren't included in any of these discussions. And I, we have to talk with them to see what that meeting was. Uh, we had just gotten that document yesterday to see if it was a meeting where, where Ducey was seeking their ideas or if it was a meeting where he was uh, just telling them what the plan would be. Uh, Democratic leadership did get to meet with the chief of staff, Kirk Adams. They came out of that meeting saying that essentially it was a way for them to, as they said, check the box so that the governor's office could say they met with Democratic leadership, but they weren't seeking ideas as much as just being told uh, the talking points. That's 
That's very much the sense I got from Democrats too. You know, I talked to some of them that said we met with the governor, but it was it wasn't like a budget negotiation. We were sitting down, telling him our ideas, and he kind of listened. And that was the you know the sense I got from a lot of them. And Democrats have also been you know just kind of ripping into the details of this plan. Yesterday, um, Rebecca Rios, the House Minority Leader, was very critical of the fact that it doesn't include money for raises for um, like librarians or school counselors, support staff that many people might see as educators. Is this uh, interaction between the governor's office and Democrats a departure from previous years, Ron? No. <laughs> That's the short answer. This is sort of a uh, rite of spring almost. Uh, we get close to having a budget, and you can count on Republicans fussing about the details, and you can count on Democrats saying we weren't included. Uh, no, this is not new. Uh, Democrats just don't have the leverage to be able to strong arm any kind of uh, budget uh, provisions that they really want. They, in fact, last year they really got rolled. They were used by the governor as uh, the the budget seemed headed for a stalemate, and uh, Doug Ducey uh, essentially used the Democrats as a threat to bring his caucus back into line, and they did. So even under you know relatively good circumstances last year, where it appeared they might be relevant uh, by the end, they kind of fell away. And we may not we may not ever know really who was in the room when it happened, because uh, even as the deal was announced and there were some Republicans wandering the halls of the House, not all of them got briefed on every detail. So maybe they were told one aspect that that the governor's office or the legislative leadership thought was important to them, but they were still getting uh, getting bits and pieces. It seemed not the whole picture, and some still weren't seemingly in accord with what the deal was at the end. And one kind of ironic twist to all this is Democrats provided the votes that made that um, highway safety fee I was talking about, or the car registration fee that I was talking about, that makes all this pencil for the governor's office. That passed only because of Democrats. It had very little Republican support. Um, the governor's office helped fast track that last week, and I don't think Democrats knew at the time when they were voting for it that that was the, one of the crucial pieces to make this whole deal work. Ron, you've been examining the data behind the CD8 election. Uh, this is the race that pitted an establishment Republican, our friend Representative Debbie Lesko, against political newcomer Harold Tipperneni. She's a Democrat. Uh, Lesko only won the race by about five points. This is a district that Trump won by 21. A lot is being made of this race. Uh, Republicans seem to be freaked out over it. What are your major takeaways? Um, you know, number one, this fits into a, a national pattern that we've seen across the country from places like South Carolina to Montana to Kansas to California. Um, this is something where we see Democrats overperforming on a consistent basis in these federal special elections. Arizona is only the latest example of that. Um, this was perhaps most dramatically illustrated in Pennsylvania and in Alabama, but the fact is Democrats have been doing a lot better in all these races, and we now continue that. We're six months out from the federal elections in the fall, and it just does not appear to be abating this Democratic enthusiasm, but also um, the uh, reluctance of Republicans to get up and, and strongly embrace candidates of all stripes. In Alabama, Republicans could sort of 
take heart and say, well, we had a flawed candidate. In Western Pennsylvania, they could say, well, you know, the Democrats had sort of the perfect candidate. Um, in Arizona, you really had a pretty sharp contrast. You had a, an accomplished state lawmaker here running against somebody who was new to the scene and really embraced a fairly mainstream Democratic uh, agenda. This was not somebody who was moderate and talking about things like uh, gun rights and, and such. This was, both sides were pretty sharp contrast there. And even still, we saw Democrats do very well given their numbers in that district. So I think Republicans nationally, but especially here in Arizona where they just saw it, really feel a sense of angst that they know that this could spell bad things for them up and down the ticket heading into the fall. And I guess the wild card is these people wearing red shirts outside the state capitol, sitting in the gallery uh, with the, these uh, teachers. Republicans are kind of playing a villain here. They're the boo hiss uh, that the teachers are going after. And if this group becomes, if this grassroots group becomes an energized political force, and who knows, what if the special election were held this last Tuesday or, or today? Uh, I'm missing my days up. The Capitol does that to you. If the special election were held today in day four of a walkout rather than the last week, I don't know what the what that would have happened or what teachers as a political force might, might do. You know, it's really kind of a subtext to this whole Red for Ed moment is um, this is not necessarily a pitched partisan uh, fight, but... It really is sort of understood that a lot of these teachers and a lot of the folks who support their efforts probably vote Democratic. And what you're seeing is a fairly muscular showing by this teachers group and their allies. And what is implicit in this is that we will be back in November. And again, given the dynamics of what we've seen across the country and now recently here in Arizona, this is something that has a significant impact on a lot of races starting with our Senate race, yes, but also it will impact the governor's race. There will be ballot initiatives. Yvonne, you saw this last year with the SOS movement uh, that you've seen a grassroots effort that really sort of blossoms into something that could ride a, a strong wave into the fall. I talked with Jennifer Duffy. She's with the Cook Political Report in D.C., and they analyze uh, races. And one of the hot races of course they're watching is the is the open seat uh u.s senate seat and i asked her this question like could this energy with the teachers movement translate into something bigger for these federal races and she says well you know these types of issues really don't impact federal races these are local control local issues you know traditionally um, these are the types of things that um, don't affect, you know, the congressional Senate races. So it'll be interesting to see if they do. It seems to me that they may have had some impact with CD8. Um, I just don't know if they can keep that energy going. And also remains to be seen what happens with the voucher expansion legislation. There is still time for the... Um, Republican-controlled legislature to take that issue off the ballot. And is, uh, if Ducey wants to repeal that issue and take it away uh, from the Democrats headed into November, um, that will be interesting. If he decides to keep it on there, I would expect to see this energy uh, 
you know, heightened. One, one thing I would add to all that is just, again, the, uh, the specter of Donald Trump as well, that you already have several dynamics that are probably going to contribute to a different mix of voters uh, in this midterm election. Uh, this is something that could impact Hispanic voter turnout. It also will impact younger voters. Uh, we saw one of the Parkland students uh, here recently at the end of the CD8 uh, election. Um, this is activating younger people. It could impact Hispanic voters, uh, women in the wake of the Me Too movement. There's just a very combustible, volatile sort of mix of emotions and uh, uh, opportunity sort of aligning themselves that when you look at the Arizona ballot in particular and what it may look like in the fall, there could be uh, something that would really, again, pull in this red for ed energy. It could also have something where people feel like they can strike a blow against Donald Trump and the ricochet could impact people like Doug Ducey, who really didn't have anything to do with it. And I think, you know, this threat or power behind the educator movement um has been resonating. Uh, you know, you're seeing a, a concerted effort on the Republican side of things, you know, trying to discredit the organizers, calling this movement partisan from the get-go because, you know, they're associating um, the, the teachers' union endorsement of David Garcia, same day that this movement kicked off, and, you know, Republican House lawmaker Maria Sims uh, in the editorial pages of the Arizona Republic wrote column uh, associating this this um, you know the, some of the organizers uh, you know as part of a socialist ploy to um, you know that that's up to no good essentially I guess my biggest question about the, going back now to this whole red for ed movement is will they turn out to vote right I mean that I think is the biggest question here they many of them were up in the chamber yesterday they were looking for the governor down on the floor they didn't really understand how really the process worked and kudos to them for getting involved but my biggest question is what does this translate to come primary you know we're spilling the tea you were speculating you know being a bunch of speculating sallies here but you know I I think just with what you've seen, this is an unprecedented level of activism that you've seen from rank and file teachers. Um, you know, the question is how how can the end game not be something bigger than what's going on here this session? And and I think the organizers have been dropping the hints, and you know, I I, I truly do believe you know with, with what's happening right now that their that their end game here is to take things beyond this session and into the ballot what that is we're speculating but you know i think that's that's fairly safe to say and i don't think we can emphasize enough how much national groups are watching this there's quite a few you know PACs, national organizations that have been having people on the ground here in the last month or two um, watching this teacher movement watching all this happen at once and you know i think we're going to see a lot of interest and big investment from national um, groups, especially on the left side, that see Arizona as increasingly purple. Do we have a sense, either Richard or Ron, both of you are familiar with the lay of the land here, but do we have a sense how much this Red for Ed movement could affect uh, David Garcia or Steve Farley's gubernatorial bids, or Ken Bennett's, I guess? They sure are trying. Uh, Ken Bennett has been out collecting signatures for his clean election campaign uh, during every day of the uh, of the walk out. Uh, Steve Farley 
has been kind of mixing a bit of his role as Senate president or minority leader, Senate minority leader, and a bit of his campaign. Uh, after he met, after Democratic leadership met with Kirk Adams, it was his campaign staff that called reporters over to talk with Steve Farley, not uh, the, you know, the Democratic leaders in, in mass. Uh, and David Garcia, I mean, there's the school bus that drove around as the, uh, as the walk out march kicked off. So I think they're all going to try to use this to their advantage. You know, one of the things that we saw in, in the CD8 race was that independence in particular really broke hard for Harold Tipperneni. Uh, it suggests that the the mass of public opinion is sort of lining up one way in these elections all across the country. And given the dynamics here that we're seeing with education in particular under the microscope, it suggests that you have, uh, based on the limited polling that we've seen, broad public support for the teachers and for this cause, and that is almost certainly going to include a constituency that has been more divided in the past, which also, uh, again, threatens to disrupt the, the normal expectations of what we would see in the fall. So uh, whether you're Doug Ducey or one of these state legislators, you might want to factor in a very different, more active, independent voter base that has already shown its hand as uh, not in favor of Republican policies. Uh, and, you know, we should add, Debbie Lesko was not just somebody who ran for federal office. She was also somebody who was instrumental in some of the education policies that this state has sketched out in the last few years, most notably the voucher-style bill that got signed into law last year and sort of turned into this uh, full-fledged effort to repeal that uh, at the ballot box. For our final segment, we bring you Spill the Tea. Ron, what kind of juicy gossip do you have on your beat? So, as you know, we've been flipping through these campaign finance reports, and Martha McSally is always on our mind these days as we ponder the Senate race. Uh, looking at some of the campaign uh, expenditures that she's outlined, it looks like she spent $14,000 at least on some speechwriters for her campaign splash to announce uh, the Senate run. And... It looks like there's like $9,000 for a plane ride, uh, which was pretty uh, epic in terms of uh, her journey from Tucson all the way to the north. Uh, Ricardo. Since the beginning of the walkout and the Red Fred movement, there has been you know, a level of opposition regarding uh, the walkout strategy and, and some of the intentions. Um, you know, We're seeing part of that group um, get a little bit more organized and vocal about it. Uh, there was a creation of a Facebook page recently, uh, Purple for Parents, uh, about 1,200 members so far. Um, you know, and, and again, it speaks to the, the fact that there is some opposition to um, this walkout. And Richard. We'll talk optics and the worry that the, uh, the Senate had, or that the legislators had, the first day of the walkout, the senators adjourned around noon and left the chamber, and the Red for Red people sort of used that as ammunition to say, look, they're not working. Uh, Jan Brewer sort of repeated that on a live interview with 12 News uh, as on the first day of the walkout. And it kind of got to uh, Speaker Messnard, who kept the House open for no reason really other than 
the way it looked, and he reminded members uh, today, and it kind of goes to you know people not really knowing how the process works, that oddly enough, the House gets stuff done, and the Senate, supposedly, when they're not on the floor. That when they're on the floor, they're pretty much just making speeches, or this week we saw last week talking about Kendrick Lamar. So arguably, their work is better done, <laughs> not gaveled in and instead doing the backroom deals that actually move uh, the budget through. Dustin. Um, I'm going to spill the tea on a little um, item that was tucked into this budget legislation. Um, there's a, uh, a measure in there that would move management of the Memorial Mall in front of the Capitol from a, a commission that's appointed to the Department of Administration. I'm hearing this might have something to do with a little controversy about Confederate monuments and um, efforts by the governor's office to kind of um, take control of the optics of what happens on the mall and not have it kind of tied up in this commission, which has been a controversy for several governorships. So incidentally, the, govern- the governor's really good friend, Kevin Donellan, is a high-profile guy over there at the Department of Administration. Seems to make sense. Um, and I'll spill a little bit of tea of my own. Representative Maria Sims penned that highly controversial column for the Arizona Republic based on the tone and some other things. I bet that that was not really written by her. Some strong tea. (laughs) That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. At Ricardo underscore Cano, C-A-N-O-1. And at Relis Writings, R-U-E-L-A-S. I'm at Dustin Gardner, that's G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. That's it for today. Thank you for listening, as always, to the Gaggle Podcast. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Haley Sanchez and Thomas Hawthorne. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.